All right, welcome to episode, this is going to be 74. We're almost 75 episodes old of the Cigar Snob Podcast. I'm Nick Jimenez. I'm joined by Eric Calvino, our publisher. Hello, y'all. And I was about to call you a special guest, but we're your guests today. Uh, Rocky Patel. So here's Rocky. Hi, everybody. Good All right. to be on. So uh, I think uh, if you're a cigar smoker and you do all of your smoking under a rock, you don't know who Rocky Patel is. Uh, but just for those people who uh, who are smoking from under, from under a rock, do all their smoking there. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit of, uh, of where Rocky comes from, how he got into the business, uh, the story behind, uh, to call it a brand, seems like it's not quite right because it's... Uh, all kinds of shit happening inside of the rocky world of, of cigars. Um, but let's start there. I think, you know, the anybody who's been into, you know, a retail humidor knows the name. But a lot of people who listen to the podcast maybe have not familiarized themselves with uh, Rocky Patel, the, the guy, and, and where you come from. Uh, and you have one of the more uh, unique stories, especially in a in a cigar world that's sort of crowded with, you know, my family's been making cigars in Cuba for a thousand generations. Seventeenth generation yeah. cigar makers. Right. So, uh, so let's kind of go back to to that beginning. You know, where uh, you're sort of introduced to to cigars and the idea of, well, maybe I could get into this business. What did that look like for you? Well, it's quite interesting. You know, my, unlike everybody else, this was and has been a big learning experience for me. I mean, I started this out as a hobby. Uh, I was really a sideline investor way back in 95, 96. And, um, you know, I was approached by somebody to kind of invest in making cigars. And um, the first few years, I just kept pouring money into the business and pouring money into the business and not seeing any returns. And pretty soon, I realized that I'd invested way more money into this hobby than I ever wanted. And so I was stuck with the cigar company strapped to my back. And I really didn't know what to do. What, what was the draw at that point? When was it? Was it really the investment, or was it that you thought it'd be a cool thing to get into? Or I thought it was a combination of both. It was an investment, something cool. I enjoyed cigars. I yep. liked them a lot, you know. And I thought it'd be something fun. And uh, I didn't realize how much work was involved in making a great quality cigar. And at first, we were having other people make the cigars for us. You know, I knew I had a good palate, and so really would make some great blends, but then when we'd get the cigars, they were quite inconsistent all the time. And so we knew that the only way to succeed was to have control of our own manufacturing. And, um, uh, you know, so eventually uh, the original brand, a brand that we started with was called Indian Tobacco Cigar Company. Mm -hmm. And one, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, visiting Nicaragua, Honduras, Dominican Republic, talking to people who'd been in the business for a long time, seeing what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, trying to pick up on all the good qualities, uh, certainly with curing the tobacco, fermenting the tobacco, construction, uh, aging, uh, smoking and tasting uh, hundreds and thousands of different blends to educate my palate. And so we realized that one of the significant parts of making a good quality cigar is to have good ingredients 
And in order to get good ingredients, we had to have relationships with some of the best tobacco growers in the world, starting with Nestor Placencia Sr. and their family. They were one of the biggest growers of Cuban seed tobacco in the world. Uh, you know, we had a good relationship with the family, and it took a long, long time when you're somebody from the outside coming into the business that doesn't have long-lasting relationships to try and get their good tobacco. Um, and then uh, there's a difference between not only acquiring tobacco, but working with people, spending the time and money to actually take the time to ferment the tobacco properly, you know, cure the tobacco properly, age the tobacco. There's a lot of inventory costs. So when you're tying up tobacco for six, seven, eight years that people are used to just turning around and selling after a year or two, you know, they're not so keen on it. But uh, we didn't have the monies when we first started to actually just have 14, 15, 16 million dollars of inventory of raw materials sitting around. So obviously I had to convince the Placencia family to allow me to have this tobacco, to really hold on to it while we cured it, while we fermented it, while we aged it. And when we had that capability of doing that, uh, you know, that's when we decided to uh, launch the Rocky Patel name and attach the name to it. Along with that came implementing the strict quality control standards in rolling the cigars, mm -hmm. you know, limiting the rollers to making 250 to 275 cigars per day, uh, you know, having draw test machines to draw test every single cigar as opposed to randomly draw testing 2 to 3% of the cigars, uh, rejecting uh, up to 20% of the cigars because... Uh, they were not perfect as far as the look of the wrapper, right. or there might have been some punta spots or veins showing, but certainly we never sacrificed any of the construction quality. So if they didn't meet the construction taste uh, quality in, in, in the way they were rolled, if there were soft spots, hard spots, if the ring gauges weren't perfect, if uh, the draw wasn't perfect, those cigars would be destroyed. So we were very, very, very meticulous. And, you know, I was lucky in that I didn't start in the business and I came from the outside, so I didn't pick up any bad habits. I didn't have bad habits. I saw what other people's factories had bad habits, where the shortcomings were, and we tried to make sure that we didn't do the same thing. So, you know, while this happened, I was also lucky at the same time to have a relationship with the people over at U.S. Tobacco, uh, UST, the company that actually makes Skoll and Copenhagen chewing tobacco, they had some big brands that they released called Don Tomas in Austral, and they decided to get in the premium cigar business, and they went out and bought millions and millions of dollars of tobacco that was sitting in their factory. Well, what happened is when that company decided to give their distribution and take it across all the liquor channels and give it to the wine companies and liquor distributors, and they were in all the in mass marketplaces, they got kind of blackballed by the retailers that were selling premium cigars. So their factories were operating at 10% capacity, and they had a huge investment in people and tobacco. And I went to them and I said, wow, you've got some really aged wrappers. Specifically, they were growing a wrapper out of Telanga Farm, and it was 12 years old. It was a broadleaf variety. They had some Ecuadorian Sumatra at that time, which was 10 years old. And they also had some aged Dominican Alorum Piloto, which was like eight years old. They had some Brazilian Matafina with a lot of age. So I went down there and made exactly 152 blends, believe it or not. And it was the first blend that we made that 
we all liked. We thought it was the greatest blend. I still know it by heart. And, uh, and you know, now how do I get that tobacco? So the deal I made with them is they needed work at their factory. They allowed me to set up a factory within their factory. So I went in and I was in charge of all the people that were actually sorting the tobacco, the people that were curing the tobacco, the people that were fermenting the tobacco. And then we had a special section in that factory at UST where we were rolling our vintage cigars. And that's when the original Rocky Patel 1990 and 92 vintage was launched. And so we limited the rollers to 250 cigars per day. Uh, They gave me the opportunity to have all this tobacco and I could use it all as long as I was rolling the cigars in that factory with people being supervised you know by us the way we wanted so that was our first break and then after we got our first break and 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 the placencia saw the success of the cigars then they allowed us to work with them and their tobaccos and let them have all this inventory of great raw materials and take the time to cure it properly ferment it properly tie up this tobacco for a long time and then after that we released the edge and then soon after the decade so you know that's kind of where our beginnings were and then slowly you know we eventually after several years then we actually opened our own factory uh in nicaragua and esteli we've also got our own farms there so nicaragua we're completely vertically integrated so we're lucky now we have two different factories and with the political situations that transpire in Central America all the time, one time some, there's problems in Honduras and other times there's problems in Nicaragua, we're lucky to have production at both places yeah. because you never know what's going to happen. I mean, we were ready with what's going on presently in Nicaragua to move our entire production to Honduras. We're lucky the factory's big enough to have that capability. We can take the tobaccos across the border. That's not a problem. So, you know, we're blessed in that way. Now, the difference, people always ask me, you know, is it really that different to make cigars in Honduras versus Nicaragua? It's really not that different. The skill set of the people is almost the same. They have years and years of tradition of making good quality handmade cigars there. Uh, The farming and the soil is quite similar uh, between the regions. Yeah, there are some taste varietals between tobacco that comes from the Hamastran Valley in Honduras versus the Esteli Valley or... uh, Jalapa, you know, Esteli obviously has some very strong peppery, rich uh, tobacco. Jalapa is, is what I call medium to full medium, uh, you know, more floral characteristics. Condega is a little different. Um, and uh, and then in Honduras, uh, the Hamastron Valley, you get a lot of sweetness from the tobacco. So it allows you to blend the tobaccos and the fillers from those two regions. And so we're lucky. I mean, there are a few differences in how we make the cigars. Mm-hmm. The cigars in Honduras are bunched in an accordion fashion, and they're single-capped. Um, and uh, the, the cigars in Nicaragua, uh, you know, we use like a tubular bunch on them like the old Cuban method and we triple cap the the, the cigars. I know I'm getting a little technical sure. for no, some that, of you guys out fine, there. but though. I think, yeah, I think yeah. that's fine. And, and that's actually kind of neat for the consumer. Uh, right. You know, sometimes people don't know what factory it comes from. You know, you could look yeah. at the head and immediately know if right. it's got a triple cap, it's a Nicaraguan Absolutely. out of Tavicusa. Yeah. And if it's a single cap, you know it's made of placentia. So yeah. that's kind of neat to have that little yeah, so nugget that you're fun. giving them. You know, obviously our production in Nicaragua is a little smaller just because we're limited by the size of the factory over there. And we have plans, hopefully, to take that production up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we're excited, you know, be completely vertically integrated 
with all the farming, with all the curing, the fermentation, the factory and everything in mm-hmm. Esteli. And, and we've just had such a great relationship with the Placencia family for years uh, that we have a great relationship working with them in Honduras. So we, we kind of breeze past uh, the, the very, very beginning, but talk a bit about uh, what you were doing before cigars uh, and what that transition was like, just in terms of like the, the culture of those two different industries. Right? You were in the- yeah, well, I was a lawyer in right. Los Angeles. And, you know, when I first started smoking cigars, uh, there were a lot of celebrities around. It was kind of a big deal. We'd be on these movie sets and you were waiting for lighting, sound, and makeup and, you know, I never smoked a cigar before, and all these celebrities started smoking cigars, so I started smoking cigars. And then there was the Grand Havana Room that opened in Beverly Hills, which was just down the road from my office. So I would go there and hang out, and, uh, you know, that's where I started smoking cigars, and that's where I was approached by this young man, Phil Zangi, uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he wanted me to invest uh, in making cigars with them. So that's kind of how this relationship started over there. So it was very, very different being a consumer, being from the outside, learning back then, admiring, uh, you know, and it was crazy because back then they were all mild cigars. I mean, I, I remember when we launched uh, the Indian Tobacco Super Forte, people thought I was crazy. I remember giving one to Lito Gomez in New York one time, and he goes, you're crazy. This is such a strong cigar, and look at him now. He makes one, <laughs> he right. some, makes some of the, the fullest-bodied yeah. cigars ever, right? Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, back then there were brands like Thomas Hines and Fonseca, and, of Oof, course, Avo was around, and Fuente was around, and, of course, Macanudo was big, and that was mild. Even the Romeo Julietas, the Monte Cristos, all that stuff was, it was just mild, mild, mild. Everything was just mild. And uh, it's quite interesting. And that's why I think a lot of the growing, and I give the Placencias credit because they were growing all this tobacco in Esteli and Jalapa in that region. And that's when the heavier tobacco started coming into play, coming into play. But the boom was on back then. So all this tobacco was going, you got nothing. I mean, you got nothing. You you know. Yeah. Uh, so luckily, uh, because the boom slowed down, there was kind of, uh, uh, you know, it slowed down as far as what the consumers were smoking. So there was tobacco available, and that gave an opportunity for somebody like me to move in and acquire this Sumatra wrapper that was 10 years old and this broadly wrapper is 10 years old and Dominican. Where can you go now and find tobacco sitting in any factory that is 810? No one would give it to you. you know. So uh, it kind of helped me that other people weren't doing well or the industry as a whole had slowed down. It gave an opportunity like somebody like myself to be able to get those type of tobaccos to really create a brand that people uh, enjoyed and liked. Well, not only that, but I imagine, you know, it, it impacted how able you were to sort of develop your own cigar identity, right? It's one thing to be a smoker and kind of know right. what you like. It's another thing to, to be a blender and it, that's gotta be harder if you're fighting, you know, uh, right. uh, tooth and nail for the tobaccos that you need to not only create the cigars, but to figure out, you know, okay, where do I want to live in this space? You know, like what is the profile I'm putting out into the world? And and, all and that, that. And, and and honestly, the the most fun part about getting involved and starting was being able to create a taste profile that is different and unique than all the cigars that were out there. And I don't know if it's because. I enjoy cooking so much and I love different flavor profiles and you know my heritage is different and my food taste and everything. So the cigars we made had a lot more pepper, spice, layers, complexity, just like great wines. You know, I loved to have 
different taste profiles with a lot of different combination of the layers and the taste that you get. At the same time, you want to have some balance. It's not about just strength, but you want to have character in, in the cigars. And, and that's what we sought after. And I mean, tell you, the biggest challenge was, yeah, we'd make hundreds of blends. And then we'd get one or two that we liked out of it. And then you'd play around with the primings of the fillers. You'd play around by changing the binders, changing the wrappers. And it's a long process because... When you roll the cigars, it tastes one way. Then you let the cigars rest for three to four months. They taste different. When you smoke the cigars in Honduras and Nicaragua Absolutely. versus getting them back home, they it's taste the different. Biggest mystery oh, to yeah. Me. The it's biggest amazing, mystery. right? Yeah. I say the altitude and the humidity has a lot to do it's with so it. It's so crazy. It you is smoke it. a cigar in Honduras and then you bring yeah. it on the plane here. Yeah. And like, Jesus Christ. It tastes cigar. so sweet back there, right? Yeah. They just yep. taste sweeter. It's, it's just, sweet. The spices are yeah, alive. Yeah, Everything yeah. tastes alive. And then you bring it here and you're like, man, that's a different cigar. It's like flat now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. In fact, I'm just smoking one right now that uh, uh, Marissa made at the, the the factory. And, you know, we're, we're just trying some different wrappers and some different fillers from different parts of Honduras, uh, Olancho. And uh, uh, this one is... Uh, uh, quite interesting but you know you'll play around with it and then three four months from now it'll change completely different it might get worse it might get better yep. you just don't know but you, it's something it's an exercise that you have to go through it's not a science yeah and, yeah. and it's and it's time consuming right yeah the, the turnarounds time. aren't fast because no. you need to give it those yeah, three yeah, months or whatever yeah, it is yeah. so yeah it's it's wild so in in that stage where uh you know you're sort of figuring all that out for yourself for the brand for the company uh who were some of the, the people that you, you leaned on, right? Because you don't just sort of parachute into Honduras and Nicaragua and, and sort of just uh, figure all that out. Hey, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. I mean, that was the hardest thing because, of course. seriously, everybody thought that I was going to be another Don Nobody, right? They just right. thought, oh, here comes this kid. We're going to suck him out of his cash, whatever he's got. He's going to move on, and he's not going to last. You know, he's never going to be around. He's just in it, you know, just like everybody else. I remember back in the 90s. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds. I mean, I I just remember going to the trade show in Cincinnati, and it was crazy. People were, we had a 10 by 10 booth, and people are coming with a suitcase of cash, saying, here's the cash, just ship us whatever, just ship us whatever. I said, this is the craziest business I've ever been in. <laughs> well, that lasted a whole year and a yeah. half, and possibly two years, and that came to a complete stop, right? But uh, it was unbelievable how many people, and I'd, I'd be down there and when I was down there, I mean, there was not a hotel or a motel or there was this crappy old place in Donnelly to stay at. And every night there'd be like six, seven manufacturers having, you know, a beer, having dinner, war stories, tobacco yeah. stories. And then you'd see people coming in, all these people wanting to make brands. And then, you know, every week there'd be like three or four new guys, three or four new guys. And, and um, it just comes to my mind right now. I remember all these brands. I could list off 25 brands right now back then that were around that are not around. But, uh, you know, so this this industry's evolved in that way. It was fun. It was interesting. I remember the trade show in Orlando, too. was insane. Uh, the stuff that was going on. And it was young, and we were having fun, and it was a good time. And uh, But the, then the, the bottom fell out, and it completely revolutionized the industry. But to answer your question about who helped, I mean, I'll, I'll say that, you know, we were lucky that we had this relationship with UST, and we went in there and we started making cigars down there, and we had the pick of the litter back then. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, we, we worked with quite a few people uh, uh, Larry Palumbo, 
was the guy at UST who was running the factory, and then Pepe Gutierrez came after him. But I remember, you know, we had a good one with Ben Tom. Ben Tom also worked down at the factory there. And, uh, you know, local guys and curing like Fausto and people like that. But, you know, they gave me the crack at allowing me to have complete control, which was great. And then that factory eventually got um, uh, given, it was given because part of a lawsuit that the, they lost to General Cigar. Uh, that factory, General Cigar, ended up at the factories and it was great. To, the Cummins allowed me uh, free reign for a while. Uh, and that was nice to be able to keep that opportunity to keep it going there. And uh, and then, of course, you know, our relationship with the Placencia family, you know, they took a risk on me at first. Uh, we would fight. Uh, there'd be a lot of screaming matches. You're crazy. We can't have you have this tobacco. And, uh, you know, uh, you don't pay for it for four years or six years, you know, until you sell your cigars. I mean, uh, I sell my tobacco right away and people pay me up front. I'm not going to let you have it. But I said, listen, you've got all these factories that you have, but you don't, you've never had, uh, you know, people talk about Padrones and people talk about Fuentes and the legacy. And, and your legacy is as a great farmer but you don't have a legacy as a great cigar maker, allow me to have these tobaccos and do what I want with it and implement these strict quality control standards, and I promise you, I'll prove to you that we'll have a solid brand made. And so they finally, after, uh, you know, it was hard getting getting Senior to change his ways, but then he saw that I wasn't just one and done, like I was here to stay, like I was yeah. working my butt off, traveling, you know, 600 cities in 700 days, working, being at the factories all the time, being on the road, pushing the brand. I mean, I was committed like nobody. I was a madman. And so finally they bought into the whole program and um, they allowed me to have it. And, and thanks to them, you know, we were able to come out with the edge and the decade and and do all these things that we wanted. But I would tell him, oh, I want this tobacco from Panama. And he's like, crazy, you want me to buy all this stuff for you? What if you don't, you know, use it? What if you don't sell it? I'm going to be stuck. So they, they helped a lot. They took some risks on our behalf. Yeah. And, uh, you know, i got to give them a lot of credit. So so those are the people in the cigar industry, in the cigar and tobacco world, who, you know, had their doubts. But I imagine, you know, on top of that, you had already established yourself and found success and, and all that in, in the law. And then you were coming from Wisconsin, and your background with India. Like, what was the feedback from other people outside? Oh, my family, my family and friends thought I'm crazy. They thought I'm nuts. Like, you have a you know successful law firm, and you invested all this money and time studying, and you know getting this degree, and now you're gonna give it up and try something that you know you'll never make. You know, be at. One of the other things that people forget too, and I don't know how many people know this, is I actually got carjacked in L.A. And um, I was uh, almost in like kind of a coma, I would say, for like a couple of days. Uh, it was pretty bad. And uh, so my parents wanted me out of L.A. They didn't want me anywhere. For You know, they're used to that small Wisconsin town growing up in Green Bay. And so I think that was also part of the equation is that, you know, okay, I said, I'm going to move to Florida and just go for this, and this is something different. I'm burnt out on L.A., burnt out on the people here. It's quite different. So that went into the mix. But, yeah, people thought I was nuts. And I, trust me, nobody thought I'd ever make it. I mean, Nimish is in this room. I remember the first day he came. He goes, uh, you know, I said, uh, you know, starting this company, come work for us. And uh, he put on a suit and tie, and he's like, all right, let's go. It's, you know, 8.30 in the morning, let's go to the office. I said, well, the office is right downstairs. 
behind the garage. She goes, what? You got me from Milwaukee to come do this, and we're sitting there with a you know, three-desk office behind the garage, and the humidor was uh, the three bedrooms upstairs were converted into the extra bedrooms were converted into the humidor. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, listen, it was, it was tough. Uh, people thought I was nuts. I thought I was nuts. There were times when I was like, what did I do? You know, what am I doing? This is just insanity. But it was hard work, perseverance, sacrifice, never looking back, thinking outside the box. And, uh, you know, if you work hard, good things happen. Yeah. I don't believe in luck. So do you remember a, a time or a moment, maybe a product that you can look back on and think, that's where I thought to myself, okay, we did it. This was, we got there. I think probably the launch of the edge. Okay. Cause we'd already had success with the vintage 1990 and the vintage 92. And then when we launched the edge, which was a total kind of, you know, it was so different than anything on the market. Yeah, Yeah. Total departure. I mean, we made a cigar without a band on it. We put it in a hundred count box. People thought we're not putting a hundred count box. No cellophane like a crate. Now I just wanted to show like a raw product right from the factory, how cigars are made and before they're shipped in nice boxes, this is how we pack them and this is what the consumer should get and the experience they should get. So when we launched the edge and it was a big change to go in and, and have Half the filler was from a company, that, a country that nobody ever used before. Uh, so it was a total dynamic change from uh, you know from anything that people did in the industry. So I think once we had the edge, and then after the decade rolled out, we felt like you know I think we're on the right path. People understand what we're doing, and I they think enjoy it what we're mentioning doing. though that that the edge is still yeah. Uh, Top yeah. skew in the in the company, right? Yeah, oh yeah, so number one. Yeah, so yeah. is the vintage. Yeah. I mean, they're, so they're those both, two old they're brands. Still horses. Those two original brands are still the yeah. horses. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about companies that have come and gone, but it's not just that Rocky Patel Premium Cigars. It's that these brands are still staple brands. Yeah, they and are staple. Yeah. Still cranking. Uh, absolutely. You go to any store, and they're still the ones that are. Yeah. That they're running through. Right. Right. So. Uh, Sort of along the same lines, you know, some of these people who who thought maybe you were a little bit out of your mind, do you remember times when maybe you went back to L.A. and you were like, okay, now we're going to smoke these cigars that you thought I was insane to go and make? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that from my old past from the Grand Havana Room, like James Orr, and there's a, a lot of people that, you know, we get together with and see, you know. I remember Pete Johnson, you know, he, he used to hang out there with us too, and he was there, and then he started working at the Grand Havana Room. So there were, we had a whole group of people. And, you know, of course, Pete knew the Fuentes, and Pete knew, you know, he was way, uh, he knew a lot of people in the cigar business way be- before I did. Yeah, he was but, geeky about the cigar yeah, he was business completely before the cigar geeky, geek way before, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, uh, he was into all, uh, into knowing everybody in the industry. And, you know, I was kind of the outsider. But, uh, yeah, trust me, I, I, <laughs> I got some great old stories of, 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 from the old, 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 old days. Yeah. And, um, um, yeah, I remember meeting Marvin Schenken in the elevator at uh, Cincinnati, and I reached out my hand to say hi. My name's Rocky Patel, you know, thank you for everything you do. And, you know, I'm just starting the industry, and I think you kind of just, you know, it's like who's whatever, what, whatever yeah, <laughs> whatever, man. <laughs> then he's become a friend now. But uh, but there was, I mean, there were a lot of people that, uh, yeah, that uh, are, I'm sure quite surprised because uh, they remember me from back then. But you know, many of them I've still hung out with and stuff. But um, yeah, yeah. 
So uh, back in, this was in May, back in May of 2018, uh, we, we ran a profile of you. And I want to get into some of this story because some people may not have seen it. You had a bit of a health scare at one point. Um, so talk, talk about that and how that sort of, uh, you know, w- what kind of corrections you made. Well, it was just my, you know, I didn't know what it was. I, I was in Hong Kong and, uh, you know, I felt like I was getting a heart attack or something. And, you know, chest pains and stuff like that. And then uh, every once in a while I would act up, you know, from some of the late nights and too much scotch and smoking cigars. And I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on because I was quite athletic, quite healthy. Sure. I was never really that overweight or anything like that. And, you know, it was a crazy lifestyle. And then... Um, I couldn't figure out what the heck it was. And then, you know, got all the tests done and everything, and the heart was fine. Everything was fine. There's no problem with the heart. And I couldn't figure out what it was. Well, it was just a bad case of acid reflux. So <laughs> just from nowhere, I this acid reflux kicked in. And it would happen. I'd be in Honduras, and I'd be, you know. And I can understand. I mean, back then, I mean, when we're in Honduras blending, I'm not kidding. We'd smoke 14, 15, 16 cigars a day. Yeah. And I'm full cigars. And I, you know, uh, that along with the late nights and rum and scotch and and all that stuff. And and, then when you're smoking that many cigars all the time and just from out of the blue, I got this acid reflux. So, um, yeah, it's been under control. So what's helped it now is, you know, I take my one Zantac every morning and and, and I work out. (laughs) <laughs> I work out religiously, and that's helped a lot. And of yep. course, my lifestyle's changed too. You know, the the the, 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 the yeah, the late nights like we used to have, and the the amount of scotch has slowed down a little bit. But uh, well, no, it's right all now, under control. Yeah, I think it's a good time. Uh, Nish has sort of taking yeah, the torch yeah, of partying, to, right? Yeah, he's, he's got traveling. that baton between tequila and uh, traveling. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm not on the road as much. I spend most of my time now in Washington, D.C., dealing with all the FDA stuff right. and stuff like that. So, yeah, I've, I've slowed down. I'm going to be 58 in a couple of weeks. And, but, uh, yeah, working out has absolutely – that's been the dramatic difference for me is religiously working out at least five days a week. Yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned the the FDA. Let's let's give people a little bit of a primer again, because you know not sure how many people who are listening to this podcast have exposed themselves uh, to that issue. If you're reading the magazine, then you see uh, stories about this all the time, and columns from Glenn Loop at Cigar Rights of America, and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, but for the person who's just totally oblivious to the extent that this can be done quickly. But let's give them a little bit of a primer on what the cigar industry is facing. Yeah, basically what's happened is you've got the FDA trying to regulate all tobacco products. And we became the unintended consequence of the regulation. What they were after were cigarettes. They were after e-cigarettes, vaping, uh, you know, uh, other products that have youth access issues and, you know, stuff with strawberry, banana flavors, watermelon flavors, stuff that, you know, they're using them for other purposes, let's say. And um, unfortunately, uh, the FDA didn't distinguish the difference between a premium handmade cigar and the other tobacco products. And when I first met with them, they had no clue. They didn't understand cigars at all. Their basic question First question was, why do you use cellophane? Like, what do you guys put cellophane on? They were so uneducated about this topic. It was pathetic. This is even it, after having begun to go after the industry. I, absolutely. They yeah. just, they, they, they carte blanche took the rule that they had that they were implementing 
against cigarettes and applied it to cigars. They didn't even distinguish that they're handmade, they're different, we don't manipulate the tobacco, uh, you know, we don't inhale, there's no chemical additives, kids smoke them when they're young. You certainly don't see children sitting around a schoolyard smoking cigars. This is not something you chain smoke. You, you know, enjoy a cigar occasionally like a fine glass of wine, a single malt scotch, uh, you know, you use it for celebration reasons. Uh, so this is not what you call a habit. This is something people enjoy as a lifestyle product. And so they didn't distinguish any of those differences at all, and that was a big problem. And the rules uh, were so limiting, uh, you know, I mean, basically, you couldn't sell or come out with any new brands after 2007. Mm -hmm. Uh, you, You'd have to have all the cigars chemically tested, constituent tested, no more. You'd have to have warning stickers on 30% of the boxes, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. Uh, the only way you could sell a cigar is if it was made prior to February 15, 2007, on or around that date, and you have to show that the cigar is exactly the same. I mean, they, they had done zero research. It was, the, the, the way I liken it, it's like sending a plumber to fix the rocket on the play, space shuttle. Okay, that's about as much knowledge as the FDA had about an industry you want to regulate. If you're going to regulate an industry, you got to learn about the industry, see what's different and unique about the industry, what their products are all about, and then take time to think about whether there's any health impact, whether there's any youth access issues. Do your research before you do it. And they had done none of it. So now we've spent the money to educate the FDA, met with them to show them, taken their own data that they had buried to show them and throw the data back at them to show them that kids don't smoke premium cigars, that you don't inhale them, that if you smoke two or three cigars a day, there's zero health impact. Uh, you know, so this is data that the FDA has uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, so, you know, but unfortunately, there are people like Mitch Zeller who heads up the tobacco division, who's a zealot. He wants to ban tobacco from the face of the planet. And he doesn't distinguish the difference or care to distinguish the difference between what a handmade premium cigar is or a cigarette. Right. So um, talk a bit about, again, a a thing that even people who are familiar with the brands may not realize is how deeply involved you are in this issue, right? Which is part of why we're getting into this with you or we might not have with certain other brand owners. Um, So talk about what your your involvement is, like on a... It's called day-to-day, week-to-week. Well, you know, one of the first things is, let me say this, that I was lucky enough to be able to enter into this fine industry and have an opportunity to work hard and be successful. And I think others should be allowed the same opportunity. I think we're an industry... Uh, just like the wine industry that has great wines from California to France to Italy to Australia to South Africa. And there's always these new young winemakers coming out with some unbelievable exceptional wines. you got Pinots out of Oregon now. you got some great cabs out of Washington State. There's all kinds of fun stuff, and it benefits the consumer. Well, that same opportunity needs to be handed out and be available in the handmade premium cigar industry because we have a lot of good young people who are passionate about cigars. We have a lot of new makers who are in Nicaragua, uh, you know, Dominican, Honduras, all over 
that are seeking this opportunity, making some very, very fine cigars, and that door would be closed completely for them. So it just seems unfair. Um, And, uh, you know, you don't want an industry where it's controlled by three or four large manufacturers, uh, and then you don't have a choice for any other independents, family businesses who are trying. I think the best thing for a consumer is choice. The consumer will then decide what they appreciate, what they like, and that choice was going to be taken away. And so, you know... Uh, it was going to limit our industry from coming out with new products, different taste profiles, uh, different sizes. Uh, it was going to take the whole creative energy out of this industry. And so having my legal background and also being a bulldog, when somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm going to find a way to get it done. So we went to Washington and we realized that, unfortunately, the congressmen, the senators, uh, you know, the administration, everybody was clueless about understanding and they needed an education. So I got tied up in it and uh, I'm still very, very involved in it because I, I really think this is an important topic. It's the right topic. And we're, we're, we're speaking the truth. So, you know, there's no reason to regulate an industry that is so well-behaved, that is a, a legal industry that, um, you know, that makes products that people enjoy around the world. And, uh, and, and it truly is an art form and a culture that's transcended over generations. Uh, you know, this is, this is something that is one of the most unique cultures in the world. I mean, going back hundreds of years. So there are legacies, there are families like the Fuentes, like the Padrones, like the Pacentias, you know, with many generations of, of you know, history. And, and, and that needs to be protected here. It's truly an art form. And, 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 you know, that's uh, something that uh, drives me every day to, you know, protect, uh, protect it. It's just not our own pocketbook. It's a matter of principle. Right, right. So to, to this point, what are some of the, uh, uh, the successes or the wins that you'd point to? And where have you felt like, okay, this is the thing that we're still kind of butting up So, against? you know, one of the things was the biggest challenge was not being able to introduce new product. And uh, what the FDA said is, you know, your product has to be substantially equivalent to product that was made prior to 2007. Well, that's such a vague word. We don't know what substantial equivalence is. And they really came out with that rule for cigarettes because cigarettes prior to a certain date were manipulated with the amount of nicotine they add, the amount of some of the other chemical ingredients that are added to make them more addictive. Well, in our case, we don't manipulate the tobacco. The tobacco has never changed. The only thing that's done with the tobacco is you add clean water to it and you age it, you ferment it, you cure it, but there's never chemicals added to it. There's no manipulation of the tobacco. We don't strive to market to kids. Uh, this is something, you know, uh, that that is a luxury lifestyle product that people enjoy occasionally. And, and, and so it's very different than all those other products. So, uh, you know, what we've managed to do is get those dates pushed back with the Justice Department. Uh, so we got another two and a half, three-year window till they, uh, till they understand our industry and can further relook their rule and the rule that was um, so hideous and obnoxious. And, um, you know, it was they were really turning it into a de facto ban or prohibition on cigars. Right. So we got that pushed back uh, for a few years till we can actually talk to them and 
teach them more about the industry. Then they wanted our beautiful boxes to have the warning stickers. And, you know, you have our family history on the boxes. You have the vintages. You have the, 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 the they tell you about the, the age of the tobaccos, uh, whether it's limited edition, special edition, and anniversary series. It tells you the country of varietal, where the tobaccos come from. So there's a lot of knowledge that's presented on our boxes, and that was going to be taken away. So we actually filed a lawsuit, and luckily uh, we had a judge who, who ruled in our favor uh, and basically said that, you know, we don't have to have those for now till they appeal it. And uh, the judge found that uh, that the FDA is not prevented, uh, not given us enough evidence to show that premium cigars are dangerous, number one, and number two, that people are going to smoke any more or less by having these uh, ridiculous warning stickers that take up so much space on the boxes. Because we already have little things on there, and there's nothing to show that they cause cancer. They cause You can't take stickers that are applied to cigarettes and apply them to our products. There's just right. two different categories. Yeah. Um, and, and what about uh, some of the things that uh, you think moving forward you'd like to see change in not only the way the business approaches it but uh but smokers what what are some of the, the things that you see like it'd be great if if this could change in the broad culture of cigars to move us toward where we need to go well i i think you know one of the other problems we face obviously is not having the capability to enjoy a cigar uh in 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 a nice lounge or you know, in, in in an open area like a park. Listen, none of us is going to be lighting up a cigar if there's a family with kids next to you. But certainly, if I'm walking around in a park and I can't see anybody within, you know, half a mile of me, I should be able to sit on a bench and enjoy a cigar. Uh, you know, uh, certainly I think we should have the opportunity to be able to have cigar lounges in any city uh, across America. If the government is so worried about the air quality standards. Well, we have mechanisms now where we can actually have HVAC systems uh, where the air is clean every 60 seconds, where it's, you know, we, we built our burn lounges, uh, one in Naples that we had, another one in Oklahoma City, or opening one in Indianapolis and Pittsburgh, we have one open and opening soon in Atlanta. We spend a half a million dollars on the HVAC system to make sure and guarantee when you come in there, the air is clean, you don't leave, your hair is not going to smell like smoke. I mean, there's there's ways to to be able to enjoy a cigar and have an environment where the air is not so troubling. And, you know, you just can't have carte blanche laws that uh, just tell you that, oh, you can't smoke because of X, Y, Z without any data, without having any uh, air quality standards, et cetera. So I think they need to revisit that. Yeah. And, to, and you know, the uh, to your point, a lot of that stuff is at the local level. I think the, absolutely, the, absolutely. the typical smoker maybe is because we, we talk so much about all this stuff that's happening at the FDA is maybe not even cognizant of how directly they can impact some of this stuff if they just kind of show up. Yeah, and the people that are making these rules and laws, unfortunately, uh, you know, are being lobbied uh, 
by the American Cancer Society, Tobacco-Free Kids, American Lung Association, World Health Organization, and you know, and all the statistics and facts that are presented by these organizations uh, have to do with cigarettes. And so right. what they do is they, they, they take everything they know about cigarettes and they throw it in everybody's face and say, well, uh, you know, premium cigars are like cigars. They don't, they don't identify the class of people smoking them. They certainly don't look at the environment where people are smoking them. They don't look at the air quality standards, some of these cigar lounges that are open. And so they, 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 they want to go ahead and propaganda to these groups to get votes without understanding this particular, right. what I call, culture uh, of premium cigars. So before we move on, I just want to make sure that we, uh, let's do a little bit of plugging. Uh, if for the person who's listening to this who thinks, okay, that all makes sense. I want to make myself a part of whatever the solution might be. Where should they go? What should they do? Well, I think the first place to start is the Cigar Rights of America website. Uh, it's an organization of consumers, uh, you know, and, you know, certainly we want you to be able, you get on the website, it's easy to uh, go to your local state and, you know, find your senators and your congressmen, and, and then, you know, we'll tell you when there's a problem, and you basically just uh, can send them a letter or, or, or an email or a phone call, uh, that would help. But we also want to show people like the NRA that we're a strong group of consumers who believe in our fundamental rights and privileges as Americans. So I would visit that website. Uh, 100% of that money goes towards fighting these causes both on a local county level, city level, state level, and federal level. And so the website is cigarrights.org. So please join. All right, so... Seeing a little bit of a hard shift here, but uh, you know we've we've talked about uh, your getting into and and the company maturing in, in cigars, the work that you do on the the issue of uh, government intrusion in cigars. Uh, talk a bit about when and how you get into the, uh, for lack of a better word, like the lounge and hospitality space, because. That's one of the things. That yeah. So you know what I noticed in all my travels is. First of all, I didn't see really some. There hasn't been much of a change in 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 where and how you smoke a cigar. So people always looked at cigar lounges as a dark place with some leather chairs, a bunch of guys, old guys sitting around having a scotch, smoking a cigar or brandy or something like that. So we wanted to show that smoking cigars can be fun. It, it can be enjoyed by everybody, women, men. Uh, you know, college students, anybody who's over 18 years old, 21 years old, who wants to enjoy in a nice area where you can have a fine single malt scotch, you can have a great bourbon, you can have a glass of wine, uh, where there's some good music, live music. So we created Burn because it transcends you into a journey. You're, 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 each one is completely different in design and architecture, uh, and you're in a very cool room, in a cool space, with clean air, uh, with a fun atmosphere, uh, some of the finest spirits, and being able to enjoy a cigar. And uh, that's what's cool. It's amazing to me. I mean, 50% of our clientele is burned. Uh, we have women, uh, right. you know, and, and people are learning about this culture and this art form, uh, just like they're learning about bourbons and craft beers. Uh, you know, they're learning about cigars that, you know, there's so many different kinds of cigars. Uh, they're different in taste varietal, country of origin, 
uh, you know, the sizes. Uh, so you can pair them with a the bourbon, with the scotch, with the wine, with the rum. Uh, so we're creating a culture of awareness and making it fun and cool to be able to enjoy a cigar. Yeah, and not only that, but I think, you know, you, you mentioned it being uh, all these things about the environment that you create at these burn lounges. Uh, I mean, I would obviously encourage people to smoke cigars, but it's a place that I wouldn't hesitate to bring up if I was with a group of people and I knew half of them didn't smoke and weren't going to smoke. Absolutely. So it's not, the way I look at our lounges, it's not a cigar lounge. It happens to be the coolest experience in that particular city, and you have the capability to smoke a cigar if you'd like. So we spend a lot of time, money in, in building these, because what happens is if we want to go to a really nice, you know, my age, I don't want to go somewhere with bottle service and boom, 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 boom. If I get done with the Roman candles sticking out of the bottle, yeah, yeah. You know, if I'm done with the nice steak dinner, I don't want to be bumped around and pushed around and and listening to really loud music. I mean, there's been a time and place for that, but you know, I want to go somewhere where I can relax and enjoy. It's a beautiful room, fine environment, some good music, chill out, be able to relax. So that's what we're creating and visually impacting. I and mean, it's a place where women would enjoy young people, older people. Uh, so we've created an environment that's different than most of the nightclubs where you can go to. It's just hard to find lounges like that anymore for us to go chill at. They're either like college bars or they're just big, full-on discotheques or nightclubs. There's nothing that's just a sexy, cool lounge right. where you can just go chill and be able to smoke a cigar. Right, right. And so the first one was here in Naples, Florida. Correct. Uh, talk a bit about what the expansion has looked like. So we've opened Naples, Florida. We've opened Pittsburgh. Uh, we've opened Oklahoma City. And then next month we open Atlanta. And then uh, the month after that, Indianapolis. So is there uh, one thing at least that I noticed uh, looking at, I haven't been to uh, the Pittsburgh one, but I did see photos from your grand opening and all that. It is a very distinct design. Uh, what has been your approach to tailoring the, the little nuances of, of each experience to the city where you're in? Yeah, so we try to bring in and mix in some of the local architecture, design, and culture. In Pittsburgh, you see, uh, you know, the way the the overall architecture design of it incorporates a lot of the steel bridges. We use a lot of brushed metal. Uh, use a lot of steel things like that. But then we also add some other flair in our upholstery, in our lights, in our other stuff. So it's kind of a mix, and each one's got a different look. Uh, Naples uh, had more of an, I would say, kind of a Middle Eastern Asian look. We've since remodeled it after seven years, and, and now it's got a complete different, more of a Florida, old Florida look. Uh, you know, Oklahoma City is very kind of Native American uh, southwestern theme to it. Uh, you know, there's cool stuff. You walk in the men's bathroom, there's a giant buffalo. There's, there's, you know, it's really, really cool in, the, in, in some of the stuff that we have in the color schemes, uh, the fabrics and everything. Uh, Atlanta is going to have a lot of southern charm. Uh, you walk into the vestibule and we're, we're tied to the baseball stadium. So we've got this giant peach made out of baseballs and the other side is giant peach made out of uh, baseball bats and, uh, you know, a lot of the big kind of big roses and flowers and umbrellas and, you know, there's a lot of that 
just Southern yeah. hospitality. So it's not um, one of those like, you know, I've been to one, I've been to them all. No, no, yeah. no. Indianapolis is going to incorporate a lot of cool stuff from the Indy 500. Uh, you know, one of the walls has all the old steering wheels from all the cars. Uh, you know, obviously we've got some really cool artwork made out of the milk bottles they use when you win the Indy 500, oh, cool. stuff like So there, there's a lot of local flair tied to it, uh, which, which makes it interesting. So what um, there, there's the the place the physical space that you're in when you're at a at a burn lounge, um, but you know you've talked about how much you love to cook and your palate and you know you you clearly enjoy consuming things other than cigars. Uh, how much fun has it been for you to incorporate that into into the work that you do with these lounges? Oh, we love it, you know, because so we have food in Pittsburgh and we have food in um, in Atlanta. But, uh, you know, it's been great because, I mean, I travel on the road and, you know, I, I, I cook quite often uh, for our foundation uh, and stuff like that. But we, we basically do, you know, 15, 16 course uh, dinners paired with wines, with cigars. Uh, so, you know, it's neat when, you, when many events we do in Naples, we, we have a restaurant next door that we cater food in for, for the pairings and things like that. So it all ties in together. I mean, a, a great meal with a great cigar, with a great wine, rum, single malt scotch, bourbon. They're all the fine things in life that we all work so hard to enjoy. That's how we relax. I mean, I tell people when you're smoking a cigar, you can have a conversation with anybody, you know, a blue-collar worker, CEO, athlete. You talk about life, politics, sports. You never see people getting into a fight at a cigar lounge, ever. It's the greatest thing that brings people together across all cultures, religions, uh, you know, uh, whatever dynamic, whatever class, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. It just brings people together. And that's what makes premium cigars so different. Right. Um, so uh, just to kind of round out that, that portion of this, because uh, I want to get into the foundation. Um, what's your, like, uh, you got cigar, cocktail, or drink, and let's call it your last meal. What are, what are you going with here? What's what's Rocky Patel uh Ending it all with my my last meal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, cigar, Ooh. cigar, drink, meal, alcoholic beverage. Oh, pick yeah. a cigar. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that uh, right now probably it's, it's tough. There's two or three I can't. Uh, the Sun Grown Maduro, okay. one of my favorites. Uh, the decades an old classic I love, and then I love the new Tavacusa, uh, made out of Nicaragua. So if I'm having like a big steak, uh, you know and done with just a big hearty meal, uh, then I'm probably going to go with something really full body that's got some spice, some pepper to it, some richness character than the Tavacusa. If I'm going to have probably like a, a, you know, a pasta and something like that with the bolognese or something like that. And your last meal can be 10 courses, that's fine. Yeah, well, <laughs> usually, hopefully it will be, uh, you know. So, uh, you know, if I'm having something lighter like sushi or something like that, then I'll probably go with the decade, you know, more elegant, more refined. Uh, so it moves around. And like anything in life, you get tired of smoking the same cigar all the time. I jump around and I smoke other cigars besides mine. There's so many good cigars on the market. It's not just Rocky Patel's. There's a lot of good cigars out there and I enjoy them. You know, uh, it's like anything. You don't go to the same restaurant all the time, uh, you know, so... 
my taste profile moves around. It depends on my mood, where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, and that's the beauty of cigars is you're always trying new things. It's the same with wines. I'm not always sticking. Just because I found a great bottle of wine, I'm not drinking that same bottle all the time. Right. Uh, you're moving around between a Brunello, sometimes a Barolo, sometimes a Cab, sometimes a Super Tuscan. So, you know. Heavy Italian lean here. Yeah, yeah. big time. It, uh, <laughs> well, I'd lean towards the Italian wines. That's no, we couldn't sure. tell. <laughs> Uh, so, so talk a bit about some of the, the, the charity work in the foundation. What, what's the nature? So one of the things we're working with is Rocky Patel Foundation. You know, we've been working. We've had the foundation for a long time. And uh, our goal now is to, uh, you know, we're working on a new factory in Nicaragua. And part of the goal is to have a school there and also have a school in Honduras. So that's one of the things I'm working on is uh, education and, and, and schooling. So that's uh, that's our plan with the foundation. And what kind of, need, you know, for the person who hasn't been to Honduras or Nicaragua, paint a picture for, for people. So, you know, these are very, very poor countries. You know, it's uh, when they say third world, it is third world. It's a country. They're countries where the people are uh, hardworking, very, very good people. Unfortunately, they've just had bad governments for such a long time. Uh, you know, they've had wars. In, between uh, in Nicaragua and then uh, on political unrest with Sandinistas and the Contras and and it seems like the the poor people never have gotten a shot at anything. There's just not been any organized development. I mean, it's scary. A lot of dirt roads. You see women. That when you come outside of the capital, take a scalper, and you're driving to the factory, you'll see hillside after hillside with just shacks. And when I say shacks, it's just like you know, thin metal sheets of metal that are on top of these shacks that are holding it up. They're probably about 10 by 10. And uh, you literally, there's no roads going up there. The women are carrying buckets of water on top of their head, carrying firewood, carrying stuff up and down. You think life is tough here? You had a tough day? You ought to go down there and visit some of these places and the conditions they live in. So they're very, very difficult conditions. And it's hard to get people to want to go to school when you're just trying to get your next meal. And so, you know, a lot of these kids are working, pumping, you know, air in the bicycle, sometimes selling drugs, uh, begging for money. Uh, you know, they're, they're just trying to make uh, make ends meet. So they're, they're very difficult areas. But when you give them work and you give them opportunity for work, then there's a lot going on and there's a lot of development. And then you always have the drug lords that come from Mexico across and bring a lot of crime. And then you have the drug trade coming through. And so they're, they're trying troubling areas. But at the same time, they're very beautiful, uh, mountainous region. Uh, Honduras and both uh, Nicaragua are absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous countries. You have amazing beaches. You have amazing mountains. Um, the, the natural landscape is gorgeous. Uh, the people are kind. They're loving. Um, so, you know, uh, it's very, very different than what we experience here. Right. And they're also, they also tend to be uh, smaller cities. So the impact that you can have with one school, pound for pound. Absolutely. Is- Listen, if you look at towns like Esteli, Nicaragua, or towns like Donli or El Paraiso in Honduras, you know, over 75 to 80 percent of the people that are working there work in the premium cigar industry. Uh, so that goes a long way for them. And, and since I've been there, we've got hospitals now, we've got schools now, we have universities now, there's a lot more culture, there's a lot more work. You see society developing in these places that where people had no chance. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, shifting back to the cigars, what's uh, sort of on the horizon? I know that uh, Tabicusa is, is the, the new thing right now. Uh, yep. Talk a bit about, about that blend for the person who's who's never come across it or even so much as heard of it. So, you know, that cigar's got a San Andres wrapper from Mexico. Uh, it's got fillers from our own farms in Esteli and Condega. Um, it's got a broadleaf binder and kinetic binder. Uh, you know, it's medium to full. It's got some spice and pepper. It's got like a lingering sweetness. It's nice and rich, very meaty cigar with a lot of flavor. One of my new favorites. I really like that cigar a lot. Uh, so, you know, that, that's the Tavacusa blend. Yeah, and it's named for the factory. It's named, by our, named after our factory, Tavacusa. And uh, I think somebody told me it's like a 10-year anniversary or something like that at the factory. So it's like oh, okay. a 10-year anniversary uh, of that factory in Nicaragua. Very cool. Um, and any pairing recommendations with that while we're on the subject? Well, I, I think if you uh, any good rum or good single malt scotch or red wine, you know, I lean towards the scotch and, and, and red wine. Uh, I'm not that much of a bourbon fan. I find bourbon to be a little sweet for my palate, but a lot of people enjoy great bourbon. It goes great well with it, too. Uh, but I think that's a great cigar after a nice steak. Yeah. So well, one, yeah. one thing about Tavicusa is I think uh, for us it's normal to look at these names like Tavicusa. But I think for for most American consumers and, and maybe even European consumers, they have no idea where does a name like Tavicusa come from. Now I know, but I'd like to hear uh, it's you know it's like a compound of, of names. Yeah, and why are those names like that always? Uh, I don't know. This is a name that our good friend and partner down in Nicaragua, Amilcar, came up with. And uh, I've never kind of gotten the, the full thing, so but it, it was tabacos, it's tobacco via, and or Cus- like that? Cuba was part of it and being, but uh, I'm getting a handwritten note handed to yes. me of exactly what the full name of it. Yeah, that's what it is. Tabacalera Villa Cuba. Villa Cuba. Yes, yeah, Tabacalera Villa Cuba. So it's the shortest Tabacusa for it. So yeah. it yeah. was originally tobacco. And it says under the sign Tabacalera Villa Cuba. Yeah, and the SA for that's like the abbreviation at the end of all these yeah. uh, corporation names. I, I've always said I, I think, you know, um, as this is a this is a, 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 a virus that has infected all of Latin America. We should never be trusted to name a business. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where like, Tabza, Tavicusa, Aganorsa, Tavolisa. Yeah, and I feel like I'm not knocking anybody because it's universal yep. across borders. I don't know what happened and what what this common Spanish heritage did to us. Yeah. Well, the dot SA is for South America, right? No, no, no. It's for Sociedad Anonima. That's like incorporated. Ink at the end of the name. Ink. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So, but Tabicusa is named for for the factory and is what's sort of on the roadmap, on the horizon for Rocky Patel? So, you know, Tabicusa is one of the new cigars that I love. The other one is the Vintage 2006. That's a really dark, dark, oily wrapper, too. And that's got a lot of flavor. So, loving that. And we came out with the cigar where we were starting to do some short runs age limited rare cigars where they're made and put away for a couple of years so we had a lot of uh, success with that with our alr we call it so we're launching another i was ALR. just smoking that earlier it was excellent yeah and yeah. they're pretty much gone and then we have a new alr coming out the trade show uh so i know we have that uh, rob what else do we have on the horizon that i'm i'm not having a, a mental block yeah, on right now yeah so we're working on another a, a mild connecticut uh, at a great price point, 
and then there'll be another probably richer full-bodied cigar and we don't have a working title for it very good Oh yeah, and then Hamlet. We're Hamlet, right? Talk yeah. About Hamlet. Yeah, let's talk so, about Hamlet. Yeah. So, so you know, for those of you that don't know who Hamlet is, he was um, one of the great torcedors uh, in Cuba for years and years and years. And Habanos used him to travel around the world, being the brand ambassador for Cuban cigars. And he was in Australia, Hong Kong, London, uh, Canada, all over the map. And um, so. He was kind of limited as to what he would do and could do in Cuba. And I got a phone call from J.J. Fox in uh, in London, uh, one of the old shops where Churchill used to hang out, and said, we've got this great kid. He wants to leave Cuba. A uh, bunch of our retailers from Australia and London and Canada have got some money together to get him out of Cuba. He's going to cross the border in Niagara Falls and come into Buffalo. And will you take care of him and somehow... Give him some work. He's got a lot of talent, and it'll be the best decision made. Never heard of Hamlet, never met him. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So he came, here, he came down here. We picked him up over there, and then he got him a house here, started working at Burn, learning about non-Cuban cigars because he only knew Cuban tobacco and Cuban cigars. And then we started shipping all the different tobaccos from all over the world over here, and he started yeah. making cigars, and he's really, truly a master of tobacco. He's a lot of knowledge, started learning about all these different tobaccos, taste profiles, rolling them, and then we wanted him to come out with his own brand called Hamlet. And, uh, you know, it makes sense. He's got a cigar called Liberation, right? Yeah. He got liberated out of Cuba. And uh, I think the taste, the, the cigars he's making are very different than our portfolio. Uh, he's making cigars that along the Cuban taste profile. Uh, they're a little more medium-bodied in flavor, complex, yeah. a lot of sweetness. Um, so he's got liberation out, and he's got some really unique sizes, uh, you know, like the Salmon size. He made a, another brand for us called 55 with the really unique size and mold that we created. So he's got um, his original line, Tabaquero, was real full-bodied, but his new 25th, uh, celebrating 25 years in the cigar industry uh, is really, really complex, well-balanced, and medium-bodied. Yeah. And it's called Hamlet. Yeah. So it's I, funny that you have, a, you, you know, you just mentioned how he's a, a true tobacco master. Yeah. But yet has to learn about all these other, right? You don't normally yeah. get a master having to learn. So it's a very yeah. interesting thing that you've got this guy who knows all about tobacco, all about yeah. making cigars, all about the process. And now suddenly has to and learn all make, these new tobaccos. And he can make any shape or size without a mold. Without a mold. Just yeah, he, he does it at it the just, show and yeah, it yeah, like blows people away. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, But it's it's interesting, right? You've got this guy who's never played with Nicaraguan yeah. tobacco, no, never played yeah. with Honduran tobacco or Mexican tobacco. I mean, rappers. when we came Brazil, Brazil, Brazil like Mata Fina, he goes, store. what's Brazilian Mata Fina? He yeah, had no what the hell are you talking about? Right. I think, am I, if it was one of the early, I think he might have been episode one. Yes, podcast? he was. He was episode one of the podcast. Oh, was he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. We recorded so, it at Burn. This was around the time that, that Tabaquero came out, I think. Or no, was it? Or Hamlet? No, I think it was uh, the... Um... No, I think it was ta- the Tabaquero. The Tabaquero. And uh, it, was, it was one of my... Uh, the, the story of how he ends up with you. You, know, you mentioned that, he had, that you had gotten this call from these guys in London. Right. Uh, you know, when he told us the story, and if you know, somebody's listening and is interested, I would scroll all the way down to episode one or two or whatever it is for the, that Hamlet interview. Apologies for our, uh, our subpar audio in the early days of the podcast. Oh, my God, yeah. Um, it was rough. But, uh, 
uh, I don't think we've we've said this on the record, but I feel like this is the time to to explain how Hamlet has contributed not only to the cigar industry and to Rocky Patel, but also to the cigar snob office lexicon. <laughs> yes. Uh, so he's telling us a story uh, about how he had gone to these guys in London and he told them, you know, I want to get out of here, like keep it to yourselves, talk to people who you trust. They had gone to you, and they came back to him, and they said, okay, well, we found one guy, and he says, that's it. That's I want the guy that didn't hesitate, that wanted to bring me in. That's who I'm trusting. Uh, and so he talks about coming to the States and, and going to burn. And uh, and the phrase that he uses is now what I tell Eric every time he calls me and I'm still at my house uh, asking where I'm at if I'm not in the office yet. He says, yeah, so I got to, I came in here to burn. I said, I'm at home. I'm at home. I'm at home. I'm at home. But that's, uh, so, uh, so anytime I call Nick, hey, dude, uh, you yeah. in the office yet? He's like, I'm at home. I'm at home. <laughs> I'm at home. Uh, but it's a it's a cool story that you know it was it was that and, and I think it also speaks to uh, to uh, you know the 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 Cuban story of just wanting to get out but wanting to find people who who help you thrive and that's certainly what he found right. with you guys so um, Eric is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to no, I think I, I checked off everything I had written yeah. so I think you guys uh, cool. is there anything we haven't gotten no, into I that? think that's good yeah cool all right so. Uh, uh, by way of, of plugs, is there anything we want to make sure we leave people with? Go to whatever website or smoke this. We talk uh, about listen, if you want any more information about our cigars, we've got a pretty comprehensive website. Uh, you'll be able to see not only pictures but descriptions about everything. And flashy uh, videos. That's pretty cool, yeah. Uh, go to RockyPatel.com. All right. And uh, otherwise, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Rocky Patel Premium Cigars. And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see some of the cool social media stuff we're doing and I'll uh, keep you informed about uh, everything that's going on with our company. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, with that, this has been the Cigar Snob Podcast. You can find us at CigarSnobMag.com. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh I forgot whoa, something. Whoa, whoa. The uh, Bash and Burn. Oh, yeah, yeah. We are having oh. a amazing – so, you know, we did the Rocky Patel Cigar Cruise for years uh, and uh, it was great because we had a, a great captive audience on a cruise ship, and we'd just go to different islands, hopping around, and there'd be uh, obviously some great dinners and cigars, and we'd, we'd actually also have uh, seminars and uh, everything from blending, uh, trying out some of the new products were coming out. There'd be education, and of course, a lot of fun. So uh, this year we decided... Uh, that we're going to do the, uh, we're going to be shipwrecked. Last year we were actually um, over in the Dominican Republic at Casa de Campo, and it turned out great. Well, this year everybody wanted to come to Bern in Naples, and then we're going to go out on a yacht and hang out there, and we'll be at the beach and uh, play some golf, and uh, it's going to be a great time enjoying cigars, some great cocktails, some great food, people wait. coming from all around the world, and that is going to be on... Uh, June 6th, June 6th to 9th in Naples, Florida. So there's a Bash and Burn website that you can go to, and you can also learn about it on the Rocky Patel website. So, uh, you know, check that out. It'll be a great time. Bashandburn.com. Bash and Burn. All right, cool. Um, all right, so, again, this has been the Cigar Snob Podcast. We've been here with Rocky Patel at uh, Rocky Patel HQ in uh, Naples, Florida. Uh, I'm Nick Jimenez. I'm with Eric Calvino. Thank you, flanked, guys. Flanked by a whole bunch Thank of other you. people here. Um, and uh, you can find us at CigarSnobMag.com. Episodes of the podcast at CigarSnobMag.com slash podcast. You can subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, which I think might be transitioning to Google Podcasts. I could be making that up. Um, and also subscribe to the magazine. We print a magazine that is very good. 
and uh, <laughs> it it's, eight, good. it's 18 Thank bucks you. for the year. Uh, all kinds of good stuff in there, including in the next issue of the magazine, uh, one of our brand breakdown features where we will be uh, giving you sort of a deeper dive into five, 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 five Rocky, Rocky Patel, Patel lines. lines. Yeah. So uh, check that out. Uh, that's it. Thanks. We're Thanks, done. guys. Thank you. Thank you.